Good morning. Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. On today's program, we're going to unpack a lot of things. And hopefully we'll be a little bit closer to a solution and certainly closer to the truth. Going to discuss the issues of the day. The government shutdown enters day 25. Two weeks from today, President Donald Trump gives his State of the Union address. I believe the government will still be shut down. I don't want it to be, but I think it will be. They will some kind of way roll into the entire government shutdown. We're going to really start seeing problems now. Delta Airlines has just come out and said it's going to cost them about $25 million this month. Lines that... Atlanta, Hartsfield Airport to get through security. They now say get to the airport three hours in advance. The line to get through security now stretches to baggage claim from baggage claim to your gate. And it's just getting started. There are calls for TSA workers, those who are still going to work and not getting paid to just strike outright. That could get the Democrats, the Republicans, President Donald Trump to come to a consensus. And I have this, I have, a, I have a story. I have this thing. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. What I try not to do is overemphasize or sensationalize minor random things that happen in our society. Because I don't want to give people more things to get paranoid about. You know, I have intentionally stayed away from the Jamie Claus story, even though it is a huge story. I don't want individuals like him, the killer and kidnapper, to have an opportunity to have his name and his crimes shared via the broadcast airwaves because there is someone somewhere who is so incredibly desperate for attention. Whenever you have an incident, there's always someone thinking that they can top it because they want that moment of infamy. So I usually stay away from that stuff. And I also don't want to increase a level of paranoia that people may have about their children disappearing. While it happens, I'd I'd like to say that it's infrequent, but I guess it depends on who you ask. But to get back to the political issues of the day, on the 90th anniversary, I guess it wouldn't be the anniversary. Today would be Dr. King's 90th birthday. An excellent time, as it always is this time of year to take a critical look at where we are. It's easy to point out the things, the very obvious things in our society that have changed, certainly in the last 90 years. The progress that has been made because of the hard work and dedication of not just Dr. King, but all of the people, all of the associates, all of the organizations that contributed to push America forward. And this country needs to get pushed. But what I've always done in my programs, regardless of where I'm broadcasting from, is I keep the memory and the legacy of Dr. King alive. So any particular day, any week, any month of the year, you may hear a Dr. King speech on this program. Because I'm not one of those who just celebrates Black History Month during February. February is where you have a particular focus on the impact of black people and black history on America. Not that's the only time you talk about it, that's the only time you think about it. That's the only time you teach it. No, no, no. It's a year-round type of proposition. It is American history. But because for so long, some Americans have been kept out of the annals of history, here is where we take a particular focus and assess where we are, where we've been, and certainly where we are going. On next Monday's program, we're going to do something much more formal.
to commemorate the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. So today we may play a speech or two. I don't want to play too many because you're just going to hear them again next Monday. But to make sure we're taking a very critical assessment of where we are. You would think the election of Donald Trump and those that continue to support him either in Congress, in state elected offices, and even his voters moves us backward that we are going back to a time in America where racism was the status quo. However, there there are glimmers of hope. And this is why days like today are so very important, because we can take a real assessment. It's very easy for somebody to say, oh, we don't have those problems anymore. The blacks can vote. Yeah, but can they? If you look at voter suppression efforts that took place as recently as last November in Florida and in, in Georgia, but can they? African-Americans are free to do whatever they want. Yeah, but are we, when you look at the mass incarceration that still exists? Everything is fair and equal. Are they, when you look at pay disparities, especially amongst black women? And so it is necessary for us in our politics and in our personal lives to take critical assessments of where we are. The Democratic Party is not one that we point fingers at for its overt racism, but you have to be abundantly clear. And I can't let people hide behind party affiliation to say, oh, the Democrats are not racist. It has nothing to do with party affiliation. It has to do with how an individual feels that their race may be better, might be smarter, more well suited for certain positions, that there are stereotypes that hamper black people, that some folks believe they won't interview them, they won't hire them, they won't give them a mortgage, they won't show them a property in a particular neighborhood. That stuff still exists and none of that is owned by a particular party. So amongst Democrats, and we know that whatever your party affiliation is, there's racism that somehow lives and breathes in it because you can't think that all the disparities that exist, especially in this city, one of the most segregated in the country, that the monopoly on racist thought is just within one political party. If that's the case, Milwaukee should be the least racist place anywhere on the planet because 70% of the people here on any given day vote for Democrats. So it becomes kind of confusing for people because they want to point at one particular political party, which allows another political party to still participate in the covert operations of racism because it's very much sublime. Just like a man can say, ah, I believe that women should have a fair shake in our society. Look at me. I'm a man and I'm married and I have a wife and I treat my wife fairly. Yes, he might treat his wife fairly, but he will not hire nor promote women at his company. He pays them less at work. But he'll say, ah, you can't call me a sexist. I'm not a misogynist because I have a wife. I love my daughters and I love the female members of my family. Yeah, but in real society, you still say disgusting and demeaning things to women. You've got sexual lawsuits, sexual harassment lawsuits stacked up against you. Well, that doesn't that doesn't count, but it does. And so taking these critical looks are important. Whenever we can make progress on race relations, I think it's a good day. And if it is one particular party that has political party that has longer to go more to achieve. It certainly is the Republicans because they have found a way 90 years after Dr. King was born to still use race as a winning political issue. And so that is the party that we focus on because they got a lot of correcting to do. And just as recently as last week, 
a representative, a member of Congress from Iowa by the name of Steve King, asked a couple of very simple questions that opened a lot of people's eyes because there are the folks that don't want to believe that this kind of stuff exists. It's a thing in the past. Can we worry about other things? Can we worry about paying a higher minimum wage? Can we worry about giving health insurance to everybody? But we still can't get away from this problem of race. And as an African-American man, whenever I talk about it, I'm seen as complaining. So I have to point to real world examples to show folks, yes, it actually still exists. And because you heard this one comment from this one particular representative does not mean that other comments are not said behind closed doors. More importantly, there's policy that is made, there are decisions that are being made with no people of color at the table. So whatever we do with immigration reform as an example of particular people not being at the table when decisions are made on their behalf, is there a group, is there an organization, is there a committee other than congressional ones that are looking at the impacts of immigration in this country? And if such a group, such an organization, such a committee exists outside of Congress, do any Latino, Hispanics, Mexicans, Hondurans, Guatemalans sit on this committee, sit on this council? Probably not. You know, I've seen these, these pictures, and I'm sure you all have too, of these congressional committees of 75-year-old white men who are deciding on abortion, like that kind of stuff. Like we obviously need some kind of immigration reform in this country. But are you consorting with the individuals that are most impacted by it, and are their thoughts and their sentiments a part of whatever the plan or whatever the policy is going to be? And usually that answer is no. And when you ask those people who are on this group, on this committee, who are making decisions on behalf of people they have very little in common with, they'll say something like, well, we can't find any qualified people to sit on this committee to help guide our decisions when it comes to immigration. We tried, but we can't find any. Those are the harms of segregation. When people operate in their own cultural and racial silos, and then a decision is required where it is necessary to get the thoughts, feelings, opinions, and sentiments of another group, of another culture, another ethnicity, they'll say they don't know any, and they are right when they say that because we are living in our own separate silos. Well, we tried. We ran an ad in the paper. Couldn't find any brown people to help give us information on how we guide immigration policy. And that's just one example. The Evers administration has said something similar when they were questioned why they're looking at diversity through a very particular lens in the Evers administration. And if you think listening to my program is going to be a bunch of wonderful compliments to Tony Evers, a.k.a. nobody's first choice, you're wrong. He's going to be held just as accountable as Scott Walker, and you should hold him just as accountable too. Tony Evers said, to a member of the Wisconsin State Legislature, we just can't find any qualified African-Americans. But then in my particular circle and other circles and other professional circles in the city, all we, we deal with and talk to and work with and collaborate with is qualified African-Americans who are wondering why their telephones don't ring. So we have a real problem here. And today is a wonderful day to discuss these problems, not to point fingers, because a lot of times when we bring up the issues of race, people have never heard these things before. They've never heard these concepts before. They never knew how they were acting in a particular fashion until somebody points it out. Well, today we're going to point it out. And then hopefully that arrives us at a solution. Only on the forum, exclusively on Real Resistance Radio. I'm your host, Sherwin Hughes. Keep it locked. I'll be right back.
I flew out of Washington this afternoon, and as soon as we started out, they notified us that the plane had mechanical difficulties, and that kept us on the ground a good while. And finally, we took off and landed, and whenever I land after mechanical difficulties, <laughs> I'm always very happy. Now, I don't want to give you an impression that as a Baptist preacher, I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> Today, the 90th anniversary of the of Dr. King's birth. I guess his 90th birthday would be today. So a lot to talk about and focus on, and it's real easy to take this route. Oh, everything is much better now. It certainly is. But then we begin to rest on our laurels, and we start to think that there's no more progress to be made. Oh, there is more progress to be made. Because now you have to use facts and figures and statistics to point to where the bigotry, racism, and inconsistency still lives. Before, you could point to a Jim Crow sign. Like, oh, racism is here, because look, it says whites only here. Or we don't serve African Americans, or this is the whites only water fountain, whatever the case may be. Now you can't point to those things anymore. Now it's much more covert. If there are spaces that you don't want to integrate because you believe these generalizations and stereotypes are true about African American men, as an example. So you can't say no black people can come in here. But if you know by using numbers and facts and statistics that African-Americans have a lower income than other groups, just charge more money. Charge more for the ticket. Charge $25 for parking. Charge $45 for a meal. You don't have to say no black supply. They just won't be able to afford it. Therefore, it saves some people the trouble having to deal with integration. And that's a very commonly used tool. Another one is the dress code. Culturally, there are differences, as there should be. It's what makes America great, right? Everybody's not the same. Everyone doesn't listen to the same music. Everyone doesn't wear the same clothes. And that's totally acceptable. We've got free expression in this country. But if you are marginally familiar with a culture because you watch TV and you use your smartphone and look at the internet. And you can make a couple of assumptions about black or African-American Afrocentric fashion. You can say on your dress code of your classy establishment, know this, know that, can't wear these, can't wear athletic gear, can't wear baseball caps, and go through a whole list of things. And if somebody comes on and says, hey, that's racist, they're going to say, how is that racist? We just don't want particular attire in our establishment. But the attire that they select are culturally specific to one group. And it may not be African-Americans. And so we have to look at the very covert things that some people will completely overlook. And even some African-Americans will say, you know what? Well, then maybe if, if I want to go into this establishment, I should conform to whatever this dress code is. If this is what they want me to wear, this is what I'll wear. Why am I complaining about it? And a lot of people do. They just say, okay, fine. But that's also like the woman saying, you know, maybe I should wear jeans instead of a skirt because someone might possibly think, and I don't want any trouble. No, it's not on the victim. The victim is not the one that has to make the changes. But then when someone says, okay, fine, I'll, 
I'll wear whatever they want me to wear. And my stance has always been this, because, oh, Sherwin Hughes has been turned away at numerous places in this city. But I'll wear whatever I want, and then I'll have whatever conversation I have with the man at the door. or the No, it's never a woman at the door. It's usually a man at the door. Sir, did you see your dress code? Because they all talk like that. Sir, you see the dress code right here? See that? It's posted. It's posted. That means it's legally binding. That means that it's a contract and a policy. I don't have to say it because you can read it right here. It's a dress code. You can't wear it. Now look at my clothes. You can't wear brown shoes here. And what I say to them, and I, sometimes I do it to make a point. I don't do it anymore. That was the younger, more rambunctious, rebellious Sherwin Hughes. I'm, I'm just an old middle-aged guy now. Just complains about stuff on a microphone. And I would say, your business... Not his, but this establishment is profitable because of, of customers. And what you can't do is get my money and then at the same time tell me as a paying customer what I'm going to be able to wear for you to get my money. It's one or the other. It will never be both. I understand that, sir, but we've got a policy right here. And the pol- I've instructed to point the policy out to all the people that are violating the dress code. And then I leave. Then I leave. That exists a lot because this city in particular, and Madison is not off the hook either. You got a couple of guys that are suing a Waukesha police officer, if not the whole department, because they were racially profiled. They had a flat tire on the side of the road. Cop pulls up, and this is nothing new to African-American motorists. Cop pulls up, where are the guns? Where's the dope? Where's the drugs? Where are they? And these are two like preachers, like men of the cloth. Like, oh, no, we thought you were coming to help us. No, no, no. Let's search the vehicle. I know you got guns and dope in here, father. It's ridiculous. So if there is progress to be made, and there certainly is, because if you were to ask women, if you had asked the gays, if you had asked the Jews, because anti-Semitism has come back in vogue all of a sudden. Well, it's never really went away. It's not all of a sudden. They will tell you that progress needs to be made. While they may not be able to point to a sign that says no Jews allowed, or women are not served here. They can point to facts and statistics that show the disparity. That is where we are in a very technologically sophisticated world. We have to use information. And here's the thing, we have all the information that we need. The disparities are clear, but for some reason they persist. So if there is progress to be made, one political party versus the other, both of them have some culpability in this. But one has much more progress to make than the other. What I believe defeats Donald Trump, and right now there's nothing to defeat him. The FBI can't defeat him. The Department of Justice can't defeat him. Democrats can't defeat him. At least not yet. What beats him are people within the confines of the Republican Party that push back on the overt sexism, racism, classism, whatever ism you can think of, When the Republican Party that wins elections by using those very dividing factors, when they begin to say enough, because that is how some of them got in their positions of power. So when they start to push back on what got them elected, that is what defeats Donald Trump. Trump has to be defeated from the inside, not from the outside. Representative Chris Stewart and Senator Mitt Romney of Utah have both called on Iowa Representative Steve King to resign after he apparently defended white supremacy in an interview last week. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back. We're going to talk about exactly that. The Forum on Real Resistance Radio, your host, Sherwin Hughes. Find us on Twitter. 
at the forum 1510 also our website the forum 1510.com from Iowa. Here we go talking about Iowa again. I don't think that Iowa, I'm going to keep saying it because it's my form of protest. Iowa, the first in the nation primary, everybody goes nuts over the Iowa caucuses and these potential presidential camp, campaigns and candidates that find office space in Iowa. They have to have a campaign operation in Iowa. 99 counties in Iowa, they got to win Iowa voters. Come on, Iowa's not that special of a place. Granted, I've never been to Iowa before. Maybe its streets are paved with gold. I don't know that. I've never been there, nor do I need to go. But Representative Steve King is from Iowa. In an interview last week, he wondered when the term white supremacy became offensive. Like He genuinely did not know. Now, I can sit here and get very upset and get bent out of shape and get angry over some of the stupid things that racists say. If that was the case, I would be in a perpetual state of anger. So I found a way, searching deep within my soul, trust me, I had to go deep, to not get angry personally and like get my blood pressure all up and get my heart rate all up when somebody says something stupid, offensive, and racist. I think to myself, because this individual said this, and they probably believe it, this is how they were raised, and this is what is talked about at their Thanksgiving dinner table, not just the Thanksgiving dinner table, the dinner table every night. I think how many more people think the same thing, that were raised the same way, that were raised to be fearful of people that don't look like them, talk like them, dress like them, go to the same church as them, and then I get overwhelmed. That then gives me a sense of purpose. So don't just focus on the one person that says something stupid. Let that be a reminder that there are many people that probably feel the same way. They need to take it a step further. If you hear one person like Representative Steve King, I think they may compel him to resign. Because even Mitch McConnell blew me away. Is coming out and saying that Steve King needs to resign for his remarks, wondering when white supremacy and white nationalism became offensive terms. A political party that wins elections on essentially that same sentiment. While they didn't say it overtly, the reason behind voter ID and other policies. This tough on crime philosophy is a way in which you can go into communi communities of color or poor communities and criminalize the culture. Because if you take jobs away and opportunity away and you reduce school funding because you know these are the census tracts and these are the neighborhoods where the black and brown people live, you can be very specific in taking resources away, then a different culture is going to emerge. People will do whatever they have to do to survive. Don't believe me? Watch what these government workers start doing, these 800,000 that are not getting paid. They're going to start doing some real creative stuff too. And so this new culture 
arrives. And then you take the elements of that culture that you manipulated by removing the resources from particular areas because you make sure this is where the black and the browns live because this is where the real estate folks are only showing houses and apartments. It's a genius system. But now they've been found out. And so you remove the resources, a new culture arises, and then you criminalize that culture. Now you have a mass incarceration system. And it grows so exponentially large with the help of some Democrats that voted for and signed into law the 1994 crime omnibus bill. Now you can make an industry out of it. That's the American way. Take a plague or take a loophole manipulate it just so so that somebody can get rich off of that issue until they get found out of course then we have to go back to the drawing board and what went wrong we have to change all of these laws that people were getting rich off of for a generation however i digress but if republicans like mitch mcconnell and mitt romney are calling for steve king to resign this represents monumental progress even though it it shouldn't like we shouldn't be having these discussions in 2019 on the 90th birthday of dr king we are. And if there's an individual who holds these sentiments, there are a lot of other people that hold those same sentiments. Many. And they may not say anything because it's embarrassing. If you don't like the gays or the Jews or the blacks or the Mexicans, like it's people say tisk tisk if you say it, like if you post it on social media, especially if you're white. And I can say a whole bunch of things because I get a bunch of leeway, but that's I wouldn't call that a benefit. This is one of the earned rights of being a minority. I get to talk about other minorities, and I won't necessarily lose my job. I mean, I try not to do it, but sometimes it's really funny. But it's only funny when I say it. Don't you say it. A white person says something racially offensive, and they're in a position of power or authority or notoriety. They're going to lose their job. Just like the Me Too movement has eviscerated the careers of particular men. If you say racist things, Don Imus, about 10, 12 years ago, said some stereotypical things about the African-American women on the Rutgers basketball team. Boom, he was off the radio. Paula Dean from the Food Network, who people were incredibly shocked that a woman in her 60s who was born in Atlanta, Georgia, a white woman, no less, used the N-word. People were like, oh, I can't believe a white woman from Atlanta, Georgia ever used the N-word in referring to black people. She lost something like $16 million worth of endorsement. She was kicked off the Food Network. I think she's back, though. I think she might be back. Back somewhere doing something. Donald Sterling, is that his name? Former owner of the L.A. Clippers. Got caught in a private conversation saying some disparaging things about African Americans, which is really stupid because if you own an NBA basketball team, a lot of black guys in the NBA, he gets caught saying some racist things. The other NBA vo owners voted to strip away his team ownership. That was a $2.2 billion costly mistake that he made. So if you have those feelings and sentiments toward people of color, communities of color, black folks, Mexicans, whatever the case may be, they're going to lose out big time. So if people hold those sentiments, they usually keep them to themselves because they don't want to pay the financial price. They don't want to be furloughed for their racial thoughts. But when someone makes it public, they're like, they're serious about it because they know what the repercussions are going to be in a society that fashions itself around political correctness. Political correctness means... You just don't say it. You think it. You exact it. 
and you legislate it. So you can't say the N-word. You can't walk down the street as a white person and say, N-word, 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 N-word. And even saying the N-word, because when I say N-word, the, the word nigger comes, like you hear it in your head, right? So even when I say N-word, it's like saying the same word anyway. So, oh, don't say the N-word whenever you say or hear somebody else say the N-word. Well, we know what word comes in your mind. So you're technically saying it, but you're just saying it in your head. That's political correctness. Well, we can't actually pronounce the word. We'll just say N-word. So then I have to say the word in my head whenever you say N-word. Like, wait a minute. What kind of a mind trick is this? So you legislate it. You say, oh, well, these particular crimes are going to be punishable by a higher offense. If there's a stereotype that African-American men and or women are much more likely to possess crack cocaine than powder, then you make the penalties even more stiff. Don't ask me, ask Tom Barrett when he was a member of Congress. Now, that was before I worked for him, but he did vote for stiffer penalties for crack cocaine versus powder. So there's a whole bunch of different examples. Go to the story here from Newsweek. Representative Chris Stewart and Senator Mitt Romney of Utah have both called on Iowa Representative Steve King to resign after he apparently defended white supremacy in an interview last week. Quote, it's not the first time he has said things that the party just cringes at and says, what in the world is he saying? That's what Stewart remarked on CNN's Cuomo primetime last night. I wish he would resign, frankly. He's lost faith and trust of his comrades. House Minority Leader Mike McCarthy announced yesterday that the House Republican Steering Committee, which assigns GOP representatives to committee roles, has stripped King of his responsibility. Senator Mitt Romney on Monday had become the first GOP lawmaker to demand King's resignation. The newly elected senator told a group of reporters in Congress that, quote, Steve King's comments are reprehensible. They have no place in polite society and certainly no place in the Republican Party. And they should have no place in the United States Congress. He ought to resign and move on. If your own Republican colleagues that in one form or another, because Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012 against Barack Obama wasn't entirely racism free. But what they do is, and it's much like advertising, whether individual members of whatever political party are racist themselves, they know that other people are. They know that other people, including voters, hold those sentiments. So what they do is they play on the sentiments of the lowest common denominator, the ignorant in American society. I'm going to take a break. Le Forum on the 90th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, Steve King, a totally different King, is being compelled to resign from Congress. Keep it locked. I'll be right back. Phone number here, 414-369-6005. If you got something to say, questions or comments are welcome. Let's go to Paul from Milwaukee on line one. Paul, you're on the air. Hello, Sherman. Can you hear Sherwin me? Sherwin can hear you great. Can hear you perfect. <laughs> Sherwin. 
<laughs> Excuse me, pardon me. And I, I, you can tell by my comment that uh, my introduction that I, I'm not a, I'm not a regular listener. I've only become familiar with your show very recently, and I wanted to uh, call your attention to um, the book called The Plot to Kill King okay. by Dr. William F. Pepper. And uh, please let me know if you've already discussed this book or, or if you if you've engaged the audience with a discussion about the truth about how Dr. King was killed. And um, so I have not, I mean, but there are there are many books and many theories and many discussions surrounding the assassination of Dr. King. What does this particular book focus on that maybe others miss? Well, that's a very good question. And what what it's written by um, uh, William Pepper, and William Pepper, as you might recall, wrote an article in Ramparts Magazine in 1967, uh, "The Children of Vietnam." that really uh, called Dr. King's attention to the war in Vietnam and expanded the scope of his, uh, mo- his efforts, his movement, to include the anti-war movement, and which was basically uh, a death sentence for him to, to include that in, in the agenda that he was addressing. And, you know, the, the um, march uh, that was scheduled, the Poor People's March, they were going to bring 500,000 people to Washington, D.C., call attention to poverty that came up and so um and dr william pepper was uh um working with king in the last year of his life and about oh maybe eight nine years went by and and finally ralph abernathy uh, contacted william pepper and and said you know i i have some some questions about about what happened let's let's go and in, interview uh, james Earl ray so uh dr pepper prepared for a few months and then he went um to the prison with uh william um Ralph Abernathy and a, and a psychiatrist and they interviewed um, Ray and they came away thinking this guy did not do it. Yeah, he was the fall so, guy. He was a patsy. And so Pepper spent the next 10 years uh, researching and doing more research. And finally, in, in the, about 18, 18, 1988, he became um, um, James Earl Ray's lawyer. And they had a TV trial in 1993 that where um, Lloyd Jowers was the owner of Jim's Grill, and he, and he there was a lot of attention being focused on him, and he started to get feel the heat, and he was trying to get an immunity deal, and he actually went on TV and confessed that he had taken the rifle from either the shooter or or the spotter, he had taken the, the murder weapon and hid it behind the grill that that day, and there were witnesses that that saw him doing this, and he was trying to get immunity, and and. After the TV trial came out, not too much happened. And but by by about 1997, the King family uh, became aware of, of the importance of, of speaking out on this issue. They they became convinced that the evidence was strong, and so um, Dexter King and, uh, and Andrew Young and, and William Pepper interviewed um, James Earl Ray in prison. They interviewed uh, Lloyd Jowers, the owner of the of Jim's Grill, twice. Uh, and in 1999, uh, Pepper and, and the King family filed a civil uh, wrongful death suit against Lloyd Jowers and, and unnamed government uh, accomplices. And after uh, about 30 days of trial and 70 witnesses, the, the jury took less than an hour to conclude that, yes, in, indeed, um, James Earl Ray was not, was not, he was a patsy, and that Lloyd Jowers was 30% complicit and other government entities were 70% complicit. Just, but Ray was I'm, never I'm, acquitted and released. As I understand, he died in prison. Absolutely right. And, and, they, and the, the state fought tooth and nail to prevent a retrial, even though, and, and this is a very important point, the, the, um, the uh, King family and Dr. Pepper succeeded in getting Judge Brown to test the murder weapon. The murder weapon could not be connected to the, to the, to the death slug, 
And the FBI, and, and there was a lot of exculpatory evidence that was withheld from the defense. Uh, remember, um, James O'Reilly pleaded guilty. He did not confess. And, and he, who was his lawyer? Percy Foreman, a uh, Texas uh, mafia attorney, took over and coerced him into taking the guilty plea with the promise that they were going to immediately appeal it. Well, it, that, you know that never happened. But some examples of some of the exculpatory evidence. The, the FBI reported on April 5th, 1968, the day after, <clears throat> excuse me, that the, the rifle, that the drop-down weapon, was, well, had never been sighted in. The sight was three and a half inches off to the, to the left and, and four inches down. Okay? And, and the idea that James O'Reilly was the shooter with a, with a gun that could not be matched to the death slug that was not even sighted in, and, and to boot, there were two witnesses who saw James O'Reilly drive off 15 minutes quarter to six that evening in that white ford mustang that's right yeah so you know and i you know i appreciate you you hearing me out on this brother um because i'm very i'm really concerned that that we're not teaching our young people the truth about what happened to dr king and i'll I'll just confess to you i I spoke with with a black historian in town Mm -hmm. uh, a black uh politician are you in milwaukee is that where you're calling from yes okay and, and another yes and another black radio host and and none of them seem to be aware of this at all. And I'm just so concerned that we're not teaching young people the truth about how Dr. King was killed. He was taken out by the state. A powerful black man stood up, and they cut him down. And if we, don't, if we can't, we need to know who the enemy is here. And, you know, and if I want to address your issue specifically ahead. because it's not that other African Americans aren't overwhelmingly concerned with specifically who done it. We have a different perspective on it. It doesn't matter if it was James Earl Ray. It doesn't matter if it was the state. The things that can assassinate a black man, either his character or his life, exist in America. So who the person is doesn't matter. There is a system at play. So going after, it'd be nice to find the killer, but that does not extinguish the system that still operates to kill and extinguish African-American men. So do we get bent out of shape by knowing that there's conspiracy theories? Eh, not really, because even if we did find the killer... There are still individuals that exist that are working very hard every day behind closed doors to assassinate the character of African-American men. But I do appreciate your call, and thank you for your well, depth of knowledge on the, the subject. They did, they did find the killer. That's the point. The book, the book was published in 2016. They identified the killer. His name was Frank Strauser. He was a, he was a sharpshooter with the Memphis Police Department. And I, I just would beg to differ with you, uh, Sherwin, that... I mean, we do need to confront the fact that the state, the FBI, the CIA, the Memphis Police Department, they killed him and got away with it. These people are still in power. You are correct. But also look at what the Chicago Police Department did and the San Francisco Police Department did to kill Black Panthers. The state has always been involved in the sanctioned murder of African-American people. But what happens is sometimes folks who are not black find that I'm like, the government that I love and that I trust that's provided so much for me and my family can do this to black people. Like, that's nothing new to us. It's so ingrained in our culture. In fact, it's what we discuss around the Thanksgiving dinner table. But sometimes other folks are completely unaware that that, exist, that system exists. Paul, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, that's good information. But I, of course it would be nice to know the actual killer and to find out who that person is to bring that one singular individual to justice. But when you do that... You don't stop the system from replicating itself and doing the same thing to another black man or black woman or Latino man or Latino woman who was trying to bring people together to rise up against a very, very corrupt and dangerous system.
we can go into the details about Kennedy. I don't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was operating alone. I don't believe that. The amount of time that he had to get off what those three shots with a bolt action rifle at something like 200 yards from the sixth floor of a book suppository, nearly impossible. And then there's the theories about the grassy knoll and where there are other shooters. That's just another example. Sometimes if you have a, f a figure in this country that transcends everything, the status quo in particular, because there's a way in which we do things in this country, and a lot of what we do is based on conformity. You ever drive through the suburbs of any big city? Why do the houses all look the same? Why do people all do this, have the same routines? Eat dinner at 6 o'clock, go to church on Sunday? Go to school, go to college, find a spouse, get married, have kids, go back to the same suburbs. It is about conformity. Because we as individuals in this country have so many rights, almost too many. And how those rights can be interpreted gives us, the American people, an almost unlimited amount of freedom. And then you have freedom of the press to share information to communicate information to people, to feed into their rights and to tell them how they can use these rights to create a better society. When Dr. King was just helping black people, yeah, he was a threat to some, but when Dr. King was involved in the war on poverty, now that brings some of those poor, rural, southern whites that don't like blacks or don't want blacks living in their towns or going to their kids' school that don't want blacks to vote, it brings them together. And then the focus can be singularly on the system that is corrupt. Because the black man or black woman or black family that was being oppressed in the Jim Crow South was also oppressing poor white Southerners at the exact same time. In fact, slavery itself. You need to tell these poor, penniless white folks to go fight the Civil War so that slave owners could still maintain their value and maintain their wealth because they owned people. Why would a poor Southerner that's not going to get the job because the job belongs to the slave that is purchased? Right? So it wasn't slavery against the working class interests of white Southerners in the South, but they didn't believe it. That, oh, we got to fight. Oh, these black folks are going to take our jobs. No, they already had your jobs. I think we've got to play Tim Wise now, actually. We'll take a break. The Forum on Real Resistance Radio. I'm your host, Sherwin Hughes. Keep it locked. I'll be right back. Six, six, six. 